0: Often described as laboratories of democracy, state legislatures have historically been credited with introducing policies that eventually make their way to Washington. Legislatures can move more quickly and deftly than the often gridlocked and polarized Congress. Think of state legislatures as Silicon Valley startups and Washington DC as, well, old line industries. But in recent years, that polarization and partisanship has made its way to state capitals. After the 2022 election, there are fewer divided state governments and more one-party majorities than we've seen in almost 70 years. So does that mean that the state legislatures can no longer produce the kind of dynamic policymaking we've seen in the past? And as we head into 2024, state executives have become hot political commodities, with many governors, think Florida Governor Ron DeSantis or Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin, being mentioned as potential presidential candidates. Helping us dig through all of this and more is Reed Wilson, founder and editor of Pluribus News, a new digital media outlet offering the most comprehensive coverage of state-level public policy in America. Now, Reed has a distinguished background as a political reporter and analyst. He was a national correspondent for The Hill and, like yours truly, also once served as editor-in-chief of The Hotline. I'm Amy Walter, and this is The Odd Years. So the most important thing as we start this conversation is for you to explain Pluribus. This was something you founded earlier this year. Tell our listeners why you decided to do this and what Pluribus does.
1: Well, we are the only independent news source that covers all 50 state legislators across the country. The theory behind this is that what happens in sacramento or albany or austin today is going to happen in 25 states next year and federally the year after that think about the last couple of decades welfare reform in the 1990s right started off as a project of four republican governors in the midwest uh the affordable care act started out as mitt romney's project in massachusetts don't tell him that and the big bipartisan accomplishment under trump the criminal justice reform started out as a project of the Koch brothers and george soros together if you can believe it uh, in states like Kansas and Oklahoma and Texas. So, you know, I think that the next president's legacy is being debated right now on a floor in the state legislature somewhere. I just don't know who that next president is or what that next legacy is. And, you know, there there are so many issues. Amy, you and I worked at the hotline and, and we had that like 50 state overview of what was happening in politics. Looking at the policy behind those, you know, or sort of after the politics take place, there's are so many good stories out there. And so while, you know, there are 500 people under the Capitol dome chasing one story, I, don't know, I feel really grateful to be the one guy who chases 500 stories everywhere else. So. Right.
0: Oh, well, read that segues perfectly into my very first question for you, because you're right. For years, there's been that saying that the state capitals are the laboratories of democracy, mm-hmm. right? They are much more um, deft And able to tackle policy issues where Washington kind of gets slowed down by process and politics. And yet, over these last 10 or so years, we've seen state legislatures become sort of wrapped up in the same partisan, polarizing paralysis, (laughs) if you will, that we've been seeing in Washington for some time. So, can you talk a little bit about that? Are state legislatures really? as vibrant when it comes to policy as they were, say, back in the 90s or earlier than that?
1: Yeah, I think they're actually more so now. Uh, Mm. I think they are are doing more things because Congress is doing less. Let's take the tech space as a perfect example here. Here are a bunch of issues that no legislator has ever had to deal with because, you know, Facebook and YouTube and all the rest weren't a thing 10, 15, 20 years ago. Um, and what are those companies? Are they media platforms? Are they advertising companies? Are they whatever they happen to be? Is Uber a transportation company or is it just a networking company? Congress is not answering any of these questions. So the states are. And what we'll see in a lot of states this year is, you know, five different states will try five different things to regulate tech or to protect kids and privacy and things like that. And next year, five other states will adopt one of those approaches. So sort of the best one is going to is going to come to the mm-hmm. fore. We saw this in California in September. They passed a bill called the Kids Code, which governs how social media companies treat kids.
0: Please tell me they didn't use two Ks to no, do no, kids no, no, and code. Oh,
1: no. no, 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 no they did not.
0: All right. That's the kind of thing that makes me insane. Sorry. So the uh, Kids Code.
1: Well, all right. So California passed it in a bipartisan basis. A Republican and a Democrat introduced it together. Actually, you probably know the Democrat. You remember Buffy Wicks? Uh, Yes, who was with the Obama
0: administration.
1: Yep, yep. She's an assemblywoman in the California Assembly now. It's her bill. And after that bill passed in California, a Republican introduced her version in Minnesota and a Democrat introduced his version in New York. So we can already see something like that moving across the states. And that happens in literally every issue that you can think of. And when Congress doesn't do something, they leave it up to the states. The vast majority of states are completely controlled by one party or the other. So there's less partisan rancor because minority party has a lot less opportunity to win back control in an election and the majority gets to experiment. And so we see as a consequence, we see some really innovative policy on the progressive side coming from Washington and Oregon and California and on the conservative side from Georgia and Arizona has been a real leader. They're going to be less so now they've got the Democratic governor, but Places like, like Georgia, like Iowa. Iowa, oh my God, Kim Reynolds is doing. It's like getting her entire wish list right now. It's really, really interesting to see. But yeah, I mean, there are some competitive states where the partisanship is akin to what happens in Congress. But because in the vast majority of states, one party overwhelmingly controls, that's less of an issue because the two sides are less competitive.
0: That raises a really interesting point, Reed. So I looked at the fact that after this last election, Fewer states now have divided government than we've seen in the last, I think, seventy years. Right, where it's one party in control of the governor, state house, state senate, than any time we've seen in the last seventy years. That that was a recipe for maybe more messaging, sort of legislation. You know, legislation that was focused almost exclusively on the issues that animated Republicans or issues that animated. Democrats, progressives versus conservatives. What you're suggesting is actually those issues may still be there, but they're also doing stuff yeah. in an innovative way on issues that aren't really the cultural hot points. So, can yeah. you point? To, so, tech is one. Are there other play? Other issues you've seen this play out?
1: Yeah, I mean, there are literally any issue we could talk about, they're there. get to a few in a second, but I'll just say that 98% of the time that you hear about a state legislature, it's because they're doing something crazy that has gotten Fox News mad or MSNBC mad. Uh, What they're actually doing 98% of the time is the bipartisan stuff that gets 99 votes. And uh, because 49 states have balanced budget amendments, and so they actually have to pass a budget, and that's how they do a lot of their policy. So because they've got to come together and do something, like they have an incentive and an impetus to do something when Congress doesn't. And so Mm -hmm. I think that's a big part of the reason that we see things happening. Um, When we think about the bipartisan trends on anything, I mean, I'll tell you, nuclear energy is really hot right now. There are more than 100 bills across the country that have been introduced this year. It's a totally bipartisan thing. You're seeing Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan talking about it and Glenn Youngkin in uh, talking about small modular reactors. That's the new hot thing. Uh, the, you know, not the like the typical. You don't have to build the thing.
0: right uh, three mile island type uh, of. Yeah, these are, these are like right. smaller
1: things that could. That's right. I don't know, 20 or 30,000 homes. That's right. And that's the new hot thing. And energy and climate is a big deal. It varies in the way people approach it, right? Democrats will talk about climate change and Republicans will talk about clean energy. They have energy independence versus climate. Yeah. They they have their code words, but they're really talking about the same thing. Um, Another big area of, well, an area that that used to be bipartisan, but is now becoming more partisan is on the education front. That's Um, right. And now there are sort of two sides of this. The bipartisan side is that right now, because states have so much money, like every teacher in America is going to get a huge raise. Blue states, red states, doesn't matter. You get a raise. Um, Because there are these massive teacher shortages and frankly, they can go to the neighboring state and get a big fat pay raise. So why not keep them here? A really interesting thing, sorry for the tangent, but something I had noted 10 years ago when I started covering the states, I was watching governors competing for businesses to try to attract businesses to their, their states. Now they're competing for workers. Worker shortages are such a big deal right now that every state is dealing with them. In every industry and in state government. Um, That's a big deal, too. So, anyway, on the education side, the bipartisan thing is everybody, every teacher gets a raise. The more partisan thing is on universal vouchers and educational savings accounts, both of which are big Republican priorities to give kids money to go to private schools or religious schools or for homeschooling. On the Democratic side, that is not as much of a priority, if you will. And that's before we get into the really contentious stuff like what passed in Florida last year. Don't say gay bill down there. Uh, Well,
0: and the issues about AP, uh, African-American history and things like this. So is what you're sensing that while the AP story and the transgender issues may be getting a lot of headlines nationally, these aren't consuming the state legislatures in the same way that they may be consuming our politics? They're not
1: consuming the legislatures because the legislatures tend to move past these hot button issues pretty fast. This is a big part of the reason that we exist is that when a trend pops up in the states, it can spread like wildfire. Like a year ago, or maybe a year and a half ago, what share of Americans had ever heard the words critical race theory? But then it became a big thing, and then it got into the Virginia governor's race, and suddenly every red state was passing something, and they did it all real quick. This time around, uh, in just the first couple of weeks of session, we've seen a lot of transgender bills, a lot of bills about drag shows, a lot of bills about abortion. But come April or May, when the budget part of the session gets hot, you're going to be hearing a lot more. Well, (laughs) you won't be hearing a lot more about legislatures, but if you read Pluribus News and you pay attention, you'll hear a lot more about energy issues and solar and net metering and and these sort of these small things that people think are not important and sexy, but have a lot more impact on your life and my life than the culture war stuff that that pops up right now.
0: That's right. Reid, you raised the point about states sitting on a bunch of money. And a lot of that is the COVID funds that went to these states. Some of it is states got a lot more in tax revenue than they expected during the COVID shutdowns. Is there, besides teacher pay raises, is there another consistent theme that you're seeing in states about what the governors and legislatures are deciding to spend it on or maybe to hold on to it and create bigger rainy day funds, things like that. Okay,
1: so a couple of different things here. First of all, rainy day funds are at a level we've never seen before. States have saved more money than they ever have before, which is good news, right? Everybody likes savings. We're seeing this really interesting trend here. In in a lot of states, governors and legislators are saying, look, we're gonna use this money for one-time projects as opposed to ongoing projects, which we would then have to cut if if a recession comes, if things turn bad. On the other hand, they're also passing extended projects that will continue beyond just a one-time thing. In blue states, the one-time part of that is tax rebates uh, that go back in the form of checks to people, who whoever qualifies. And the ongoing spending is a social program or expanded pre-K. That's a massive thing right now in a bunch of states. Gretchen Whitmer is going to do that in Michigan. In the the Republican states, in the red states, it's the reverse, right? They're passing tax cuts that will last long past the good times, and they are using the one-time money for things like infrastructure and roads and bridges and things like that. Yeah, interesting to note that the uh, the two sides have very different priorities in that particular area.
0: Uh, It's not surprising at all. Now, one of the other surprises, though, for the 2022 elections was the fact that uh, we saw only one incumbent governor loose. I suspect that a part of that was that despite COVID coming at the very beginning or sort of the midpoint of their terms, they were blessed with the fact that the economy was not terrible in their states, right? What they thought they were going to have to do was go in and cut a lot of spending because their states suffered under COVID. What they were able to do was not only keep the lights on, but then even during the last election, give rebates and promises of more money going into people's pockets. So do you think that was a big reason for the success that incumbents had in 2022? Or do you have some other reasons for what we saw at the state and gubernatorial level last
1: election? I would say most governors were the faces of their local responses to to COVID. And so everybody saw their governors leading. And yeah, they might not have loved shutdowns or they might not have loved, uh, opening up school closing and whatever, but forgive me for stereotyping. But if you were the type of person who was going to get really mad about a shutdown, like I can probably guess how you're going to vote in November. And I don't think COVID changed a lot of minds. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, even in Nevada, the one instance where an incumbent lost the economy was, the economy is actually good. Like Nevada has historically high unemployment rates versus other States in the country. And, uh, Nevada's Unemployment rate is lower now than it has been in a very long time. The problem is that it's, it's such a service-based economy, right? right? Everything is gaming. Those shutdowns really hurt Governor Sisolak in particular in the two main areas where he needed his votes, in Clark County and in Washoe. I will say, I mean, like the hardest thing in American politics to do is to beat a city governor. And as a matter of fact, I just did the math on this. Over time, it's actually gotten harder. So over the last huh. uh, two years, Between about 1980 and 2014, uh, it was about 80% of governors won re-election if they sought a new term. And since 2014, 90% of governors have won re-election as they seek a new term. So Sisolak is one of a small handful of of governors who have lost. Um, But if you were
0: going to pick a year, again, just in a vacuum, if you'd say, what would be a really difficult year to run for re-election? I would say that the re-election effort for a governor who had to go through a pandemic crisis, mm-hmm. an economic crisis, boy, that could be really tough for a governor to overcome and in every single case. But for, look, as you pointed out, Sisolak, they all did really yeah, well. They
1: did. I think it's interesting to watch these governors um, because we're in sort of a golden age of governors. If mm-hmm. you're on the left or the right, you why would anybody look to the Senate for a presidential candidate these days? Like, okay, everybody's going to talk about Ron DeSantis. People should be talking about Brian Kemp. Like I have never seen a candidate better use the levers of power, uh, the levers of government to to bolster his own reelection chances than I have Brian Kemp. That was incredible politics. Uh, on the left, you've got, let's just talk about the new guys. I mean, Josh Shapiro and Wes Moore are going to be in the national conversation at some point. Gretchen Whitmer you know, pretty much already is near the top of the pack there. I don't know. It's the golden age of governors. That's what I've been saying.
0: It's so weird, Reid. I, I remember... I think reading somewhere, somebody writing about Brian Kemp, uh, yes, I agree with you completely because I wrote the same thing. We are in a mind-meld situation that for a purple state governor, to me, his success is one that Republicans should seek to emulate or at least to take a look at to say, "Hmm, maybe this is the kind of national candidate who could win us back purple state's uh, in 2024, the other people I wanted to ask you about, because this was a perfect transition to my next question about the rising stars, the two other names we hear about on the Republican side, uh, Greg Abbott down in Texas, mm-hmm. and then Chris Sununu, right? Yeah. Yes, Chris Sununu up in New Hampshire. Talk to me about those two executives and how they performed in their states and what they would look like, you think, as a national candidate.
1: Let's start with Abbott. And I think he's the more interesting one with apologies to Governor Sununu. Um, Abbott was Ron DeSantis before DeSantis was DeSantis. He's in his third term as governor. He's been, by any objective measure, an extremely conservative governor running a big state. And let's not forget that while his predecessor didn't do great on the presidential stage, the predecessor of his predecessor <laughs> was you know, a two-term president. George W. Bush. I'm surprised that Abbott is not getting more attention, has not been a conservative darling as much as other people have become, and isn't out there more. Like I would expect him to have gone to Iowa and New Hampshire by now, but he really hasn't. Our mutual friend Chuck Todd thinks that this is the New York media's pro-Florida bias.
0: It is a fascinating point because both he and Kemp defeated Democratic superstars from 2018, right? Stacey Abrams and Beto O'Rourke. So even from the Republican base, they should be getting uh, or he should be getting that same level of, look, he took on the liberals' favorite candidate and beat him by an even bigger margin, but Mm -hmm. that hasn't happened.
1: It hasn't. Abbott has some really complicated politics of his own. I'll say one of my favorite things about states is that the Democrats versus Republicans story is so much less interesting than the Dems on Dems or the R's on R's. When it happens in these states, it's just an amazing story. And the constellation of Republican actors in Texas is really fascinating because you've got Greg Abbott, who is by all objective measures a conservative, but his lieutenant governor, who's very powerful in in Texas under the uh, post-Civil War Constitution, is Dan Patrick. And Dan Patrick is one of the i would say most conservative people in public office today he's a former radio host so he's got like he's got that that sort of i don't know if you will (laughs) that's not too stupid a word to use but like he has made very clear that he will attack greg abbott or the house speaker who he has repeatedly attacked over the course of several different speakers and when he does The hardcore conservatives in Texas go absolutely crazy. And so Abbott is sort of looking over his shoulder at Patrick and the the state House Speaker, this poor guy, Dane Phelan, has to be the Chamber of Commerce Republican in the room. And anyway, it's really interesting. The internal politics, I'm sure, are playing some role, at least in the fact that Abbott is not more prominent as a potential candidate. When we talk about Sununu, just to touch on him briefly, like, yes, great. You know, he's going to be he's going to be a candidate who makes it a couple of months before he drops out. Um, I'm sorry about the cat in the background.
0: I love the cat in the background. background. Can you put him in the pictures? He what is what is he looking for? What's the deal, man? What's the deal? What do you need? You want food? Oh, Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, So Sununu, why are you so skeptical?
1: He feels like yesterday's Republican. He's John Sununu's son and John Sununu's brother, different Sununus. I can never remember which is H and which is E. You remember? No, I do not. Yeah,
0: okay. Maybe the elder, the the Bush the era H. is yeah. H. I I'm kind right. of thinking that, but...
1: But Sununu feels like yesterday's Republican. He's not the most conservative in New Hampshire. He has similar politics to Abbott, though there's no like arch-conservative like Dan Patrick looking over his shoulder, making life difficult for him. But he's had his fights with conservatives in the state. And if you're not the most conservative or able to pitch yourself as the most conservative candidate in the Republican field, I mean, what chance do you have in a modern Republican primary?
0: Well, Uh, and his candidates lost primaries. The candidates that he handpicked in 2022 didn't do particularly well in Republican primaries either. Yeah. I mean, he's got a fantastic record as
1: governor and the Democrats don't bother to challenge him. The state senator who ran this time did he break 40? I'm not sure he broke 40%, which is remarkable in, in a, a race in which, you know, Maggie Hassan won re-election relatively comfortably in a state that hasn't gone Republican for a presidential candidate since Bush in 04, right? Or was it Bush in 2000? New Hampshire was the one state that flipped, but I could never remember if it went. It
0: was 2000... Did Gore win? Between 2000 state? and 2004. Okay. Um, anyway. Boy, yeah. get. <laughs> Don't you're not supposed to stump me, Reid. That's my job. All right. We're going to get into a quick lightning round here for those of us looking for two things. One, the states to watch for in the 23, 24 political context, in other Mm -hmm. words, states that could either change hands or could become really important politically. What would those
1: be? point you to Arizona as the number one is Mm. a Democratic governor, two Democratic senators. Well, one Democratic senator, one independent who still caucuses with the Democrats. So I think we should just call her a Democrat. Uh, The legislature is very conservative, but the Republicans only have a one seat majority in both Mm. chambers. And there's a tension between the conservatives and the moderates there. Uh, the moderates i mean the establishment what you would have thought of as a republican 20 years ago and the election denialists of today there's a big tension there and it's going to pop at some point i don't know if it'll be 2024 but the dams came pretty close to winning back those chambers this year on the other side i think the midwest is the place where republicans are going to have the best chance in a lot of state legislatures you know Michigan and Minnesota just flipped this year. They could year. flip
0: back in 2014. Know,
1: Democrats are being very aggressive in both states. Uh, they're doing mm. a lot of stuff. They're basically the wish list that that both Governor Walz Go- in Minnesota and Governor Whitmer and Michigan had are now just they're clearing the decks and passing mm. everything. And is that going to be too much? I don't know. But based on the demographic trends and what we've seen from the white working class voters in other parts of the Midwest, those states could be moving Towards the right, despite the Democratic wins in 2022.
0: So All right. Um, all right. Now we're going to do the questions that are personal, the personal and political. Okay. All right. So who was the first elected official that you ever met? Oh, remember I love who this, that was. Oh,
1: I wish I had the photo here. Mm. So when I was in second grade, I had this awesome teacher. Uh, and her name was Miss Shay. It was spell- it was a very Norwegian spelling, like there was a K and a J in there, and I'm not really sure how. But there was a huge teacher strike in Washington State when I was in second grade, and I was really depressed because I was out of school for two weeks. And so my parents, in a you know nice way of teaching me about how a bill becomes a law, took me down to Olympia to meet my state representative. Uh, who was the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee. And he, he talked to me about budgets and pie charts. And, you know, well, these people want this money and these people want this money, but we only have this much money and all this stuff. And I followed his career as he became King County Executive and then he became governor and then he became Commerce Secretary under Obama and Obama's ambassador to China. And it was Gary Locke. Um, and I, Does he oh, know this story? Yes, he does. I have a photo of him. And I mean, you know, I'm yay high. All eight. right. He's for some reason, I guess this was the thing in the early 90s. He has a tie that's like down to his knees. It's <laughs> like way over tied. Uh But I, the last time I saw him, I had brought the photo and I showed him his photo. and He literally like physically jumped. He's like, oh, my God. And he, was, he absolutely loved it. So we had a great talk there. So is
0: he it. the reason you do what you do now? Or that one, the reason
1: he's one of them. I think that was the first manifestation of it. Over the course of the last couple of months, I've sat down with literally hundreds of state legislators and more than a few of them have asked me if they should ever run for Congress. Mm-hmm. I say, absolutely not. Why would you ever do that? You know, you come here to be the just one vote in out of out of your majority or your minority, even even worse, uh, when in your state legislative it's just like you can do something for your constituents. like when they pass the infrastructure bill, it's not Secretary Buttigieg who decides which bridge gets built or, you know, Peter DeFazio when he's chair of the infrastructure committee. No, it's the local legislators and the local city council people and all that. That's where you have the most impact. Yeah, it's not the most glamorous, but it's where you're going to have the most impact on people's lives. I think that's where I saw that for the first time was when
0: Gary Locke explained that all to me. That is a great story. Such a great story. Um, I think I know the answer to this question, but I, I might not. This is about um, sports, okay? If you could watch any sporting event live,
1: what would it be? I did. Uh, I watched oh. the when I wanted to a couple of years ago. I got to go see the Tour of Flanders and Perry roubaix uh, And I wrote is... about it for the Washington Post. And I actually rode Perry roubaix uh, okay. I know. Is...
0: I can't believe you did that.
1: Yeah, right. I, I You rode the think.
0: cobblestones. Yes.
1: So for can I can I give you Yes, please thoughts?
0: explain. All the right. Hell of the North too.
1: Yeah, everyone knows the Tour de France when you're talking about bike racing, but there there are these one-day classics that happen in the early part of the spring. They're coming up in a couple of weeks, well, a couple of months, like late March, early April, and they happen in northern France and Belgium and the weather's always terrible uh and and these two races in particular, they're all these cobblestones and they're nasty and um, uh, I mean, cobblestones sounds gentle. I mean, these are like boulders, like maliciously shaped boulders <laughs> intent on wounding you. And you got to ride over them on a bike. I am only lucky that I didn't break my collarbone. So um, those are cool to see. You know, I guess the next one I want to go see is Strada Bianchi, which is super cool. They ride up into Siena, up this like 18% grade at the end of uh, a day on the white roads of Tuscany. Like, I mean, hard to beat that,
0: right? That is is amazing amazing how many times did you wipe out on the cobbles
1: okay yeah on the very first sector that i did about 20 yards in i just hit a hit hit the line wrong and i toppled gently into the grass it was a nice soft grass which is why they started that there but i have this distinct memory of looking up at the sky thinking to myself oh my god what have i done i have so much more of this to go yeah and thinking i was never gonna make it
0: but you did I'm very proud of you.
1: I found somebody who looked like she knew what she was doing. I followed her and she took me over the right line. (laughs) There we go.
0: Well, Reed Wilson, this has been great. Thank you for taking time. I know starting your own brand new business comes with a lot of responsibility. So I really appreciate you giving a little bit of time back. And a shout out to my fellow hotline alum, editor in chief. All of the hotliners say, Right, once a hotliner, always a hotliner. We we stick together. Of course, we'll be encouraging, not just our listeners here, but I do. I encourage everybody I talk to to subscribe to Pluribus. It is a fantastic look at what is going on in the fifty states, the trends, the outlook, and more importantly, I think, and that this might take away from this conversation, the optimism about politics because it shows that it can actually it does actually work most of the time we just tend to and the political press just tends to spend a lot of time on what's not working
1: yeah yeah i think that's the case and thank you so much for having me of
0: course the odd years is brought to you by the cook political report